Welcome to the herd and thanks for listening. If you enjoy this sodcast, please like it, share it, give it a good rating and follow and help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Meet Your Herdmates Sodcast. Today, it's my great honor to be joined by one of the Sodfather's mentors and somebody who's played a part in forage agriculture, not just in Kentucky, not just in the southeastern U.S., not just in the U.S., but this man has traveled many different pastures. He's, he's seen many fields in his career. Dr. Gary Lacefield, thank you for joining us. It is indeed an honor for me to be with you. Of course, anytime I get a chance to associate with you in any venue, it's always great. Uh, it is somewhat intimidating because I was thinking earlier, I have watched, listened to every podcast you, you put out. And you have had some of the leaders from not only this country, but from other countries on there. So as I thought about why you invited me, I thought, well, maybe you just needed some comedy relief or something today. And then your listeners, after we finish the program today, may think, you know, Gary may have some photographs or stories on Peter that, that he's blackmailing. Not sure you I don't have either, but I'm delighted to be with you today. Oh, yeah, the, there is a backstory. Um, <laughs> so you, now when did you retire, Gary? 2015. 2015. And you... You grew up in Kentucky. That's you. Those are your roots. Um, you got your degree from West, or you got your undergraduate from Western Kentucky, correct? Mm -hmm. And and you finished your graduate work in Missouri, as I recall, mm -hmm. and then served um, agriculture from the Western Kentucky Research and Extension Center. Is that the right name for? That's correct. Okay. You started in that position when? In 1974. So 74 to 2015. 41. Yeah, 41. Thank you for helping me. <laughs> um, so that's a pretty big time, uh, I mean, shift-wise in agriculture, the, the, what were, um, well, first, you didn't grow up in a, in a city, you grew up out in the country, right? I actually did. I grew up here in Kentucky, uh, in Ohio County, actually, on a very uh, poor farm. In fact, we, we uh, farmed with horses and mules until I was in high school and we got our first tractor. And even then, it only had a two-bottom plow and a six-foot disc. So I grew up on that small, uh, diversified farm. We had both crops and livestock. So we had a, a, all different kinds of livestock, including milking cows, which we, we milked by hand. So I had that. And then, of course, in Kentucky, especially during that era, most Kentucky farmers grew some tobacco. And we did on our farm. In fact, I, I say jokingly that because of the work in tobacco helped me through some long nights of studying biochemistry in, in college because I wasn't about to go back to doing that. But we were growing tobacco back before a lot of the technology came along. So everything was done 
by hand. So it was that, but it was a good learning experience and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed uh, pretty much all the crops with the exception of tobacco and I enjoyed the livestock really more. The animal agriculture was always more intriguing to me. So I grew up uh, with a, a passion for agriculture, a passion for farming and a passion for farmers. I, of course, that's all I'd been around and I always felt that they certainly were the salt of the earth because those were uh, my family and my peers and my neighbors. And I have tremendous respect for them and their ingenuity to be able to get some things done with limited resources. Mm -hmm. Indeed. So, so that, w was it clear to you that you were always going to be studying forages or did you start on something else and end up in forage agriculture? How did that process work for you as you went from Western Kentucky ultimately to Missouri? Well, let's back up just a little bit. When I was um, growing up in Ohio County, no one in my immediate or extended family had ever been to college. So I didn't grow up with any aspirations or uh, even desires uh, of going to college. I didn't apply myself a lot in high school, but I made it through with, with B, a lot of B's and C's. And so after uh, I got out of high school, just a few days later, I joined the military. And I went in the military, went in Fort Knox and did my basic training and then went to school there. And then I went to Germany for three years. While I was in Germany, I had an opportunity to travel a lot throughout Europe. Got to see a lot of different kinds of culture and agriculture in particular, enjoyed that. And then when I came back to the States, I came back with the full intention of getting a job. Now I need to insert another little piece in here because it is important. I met a young lady when I was in the ninth grade and she was in the eighth grade and I fell madly in love with her, but I was too intimidated to even speak to her at the time. But later on in high school, I did start dating her and uh, we dated throughout high school. And while I was in Germany, uh, we wrote each other every day. Uh, we mailed them twice a week, but we wrote each other. She was a year behind me in school. And so after she graduated, she enrolled at Western Kentucky University. Uh, with the aspirations of becoming a teacher like her mother. And so when uh, I got out of the Army, uh, I was coming uh, and visiting with her every weekend if I could. I was working in Illinois. I was working at a U.S. powder company where they made uh, dynamite and, and for Vietnam. And of course, uh, I was uh, working as many double shifts as I could. But I, I was going to work a double shift on a Friday night and... Uh, uh, the foreman said, we're not going to work a double tonight, so go on home. I lived 13 miles from the factory. Uh, that night, they were just doing inventory, and, and the factory blew up. The nitroglycerin, the base of the compound, extremely explosive. So I was without a job. I had learned that there was such thing as a GI Bill. So I thought I was getting close to when the semester started at Western. I sent in the application. Um, and uh, applied for the GI Bill and got the GI Bill. I was uh, accepted at Western on probation. My high school grades and my ACT tests and things were so low, they didn't even accept me on, as a regular student. So I was on probation and that was okay because I knew that I would only make it one semester because I had the, the false opinion that to make it through college, through the university, you had to be smart. And, and I had just gotten out of the military, and after six weeks, my first six weeks, 
uh, we had our exams and I did those exams and I learned the most important lesson of my entire college career. And that was that you don't have to be that smart to make it through college. You don't have to have that high ACT or other test scores to get in. But if you're willing to work, and that's what I was willing to do. So three years later, I got a BS. And then a year and a half after that, I got a master's. I took it very seriously. And uh, in addition, I got married the, mm -hmm. in, in that period of time. So I finished up here and then uh, looked at some schools and went to the University of Missouri. They had an excellent forage program at the time. However, I didn't go there with the intent of uh, studying forages. I'd done a master's degree in weed science and I had interest in weed science and row crops and, uh, and forages. And I got out there, I had a fellowship for teaching. So I was teaching and I met uh, Dr. Ken Larson and he, uh, he was a, a very good forage man. And he asked me to come and work in his program. So three years later, I finished degree and had a chance to work with one of my favorite plants still today, alfalfa. And I worked with in physiology and biochemistry and looked at stress tolerance of alfalfa during my PhD. So that's uh, that's actually how I got in, into forages. It would have been a better story, Peter, if I'd said yes from a young child. That's all I ever wanted to do. But, but that wasn't the case. Uh, but uh, I did uh, get very interested in it. And, and Missouri had an outstanding program with some outstanding faculty members that not only did I work with there, but had a chance to work with afterward. And many of them became very close friends in the areas that we were working together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's... Well, that was a long answer to a short question. What well, time is it? <laughs> but that's the best kind, you know, because um, I get to learn that you and I both share that weed science thing. Because, um, in fact, we were talking earlier about a mutual friend, Carl Hovland, and he's the man that changed my trajectory because I was all set to work on a pasture weed control problem at the University of Kentucky. And as a result of his class at Georgia, I decided, took that, ended up working instead in, in grazing behavior. Um, mm -hmm. So um, those, those are it's important to hear those stories about we're real clear on where we're going. And then all of a sudden we, we have a reason to change that. That's it's, it's good to know that. Um, there have been some changes. You mentioned the, the, the mentors and the people that were in place. It's been my perception that over the years, the, 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 the fraternity or, the faculty of uh, forage scientists across the nation has really declined in terms of the numbers and the programs in general. Now, Kentucky's done a good job of maintaining. Um, so if somebody was looking for a school to, or a, a state to go to to study, Kentucky would be one of those that I would recommend versus some others that a couple decades ago, they were doing great work with faculty there and now not so much is left anymore and your perspective as somebody who's been part of the extension and research community and forages over the years have is that accurate on my part and where very much so uh, and and i think i and you uh, also we had an opportunity to work 
some outstanding years with some outstanding people. And uh, yes, if we look statistically at, at the forage teaching, research, and extension, we have lost a tremendous number of people in the last 30 years. And that position, it's about a third, in fact, and more so for, for extension. So yes, we have, have lost a lot. We're doing a whole lot more with a whole lot less today. But uh, you think about the, the 80s, the late 70s, 80s, and 90s, we had a lot of, lot of legends. A lot of people who grew up on farms, uh, went into World War II, came out, worked hard. They had that linkage to the farm and that determination, dedication to do the best practical work. Then those folks started retiring off. When I left Missouri and came to Kentucky, we had some absolute legends, some of my heroes, uh, even before I got into forages, people like Warren Thompson uh, and Bob Button and Tim Taylor and, and Bill Templeton, they were true legends and I had a chance to work with them. Uh, Dr. Fergus, uh, who was the one that went down to Menifee County and, and brought that first Kentucky 31 fescue seed back to Lexington, you know, he was already retired, but I had a chance to get to know him and work with him. And I still have some publications that that he gave me when he was cleaning out his, his boxes. But those were the cases and we could go across the country and you could name just as many as I could uh, of those, the Dr. Blazers, Dr. Motts, uh, all of those Vern Marble out in California who I spent a sabbatic with. We had some great people, they have retired. Now we've got some wonderful people now, yes. but we've got a whole lot less than we had back then. It's not just the universities. Uh, industry as well. When I first started working, you know, my Rolodex was really full of, of all the chemical and seed companies that I worked with. And over time, they just got fewer and fewer and they they were absorbed by each other and, and uh, just fewer of them out there. So uh, the amount of research, the amount of teaching and the number of people involved in extending that technology to the farmers are fewer now. And we're using a lot of different technologies, which is helping, but it's still, uh, it's been a big change. And and uh, there's this perception, and again, it may just be my misperception, but it seems to me like forages is always treated as the marginal enterprise. It's It's what you do on the land that you can't grow other crops on, minimal sort of management, minimal sort of impact, input, and then they say, well, it's a minimal return or marginal return. It's like, well, maybe if you managed it at a different level on different land, you might see different results. I think that that also impacts industry looks at it and says, well, where's the return? Um, young faculty have to pursue grants and funding and where are those going to come from when the industry isn't interested and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so what sorts of things might shift? What things do you see now that might help increase the interest in forages and maybe provide some resources to help the young faculty members that we know of that are just coming into the field and graduate students to come in as well. You know, why, why should a graduate student get interested in forages now? Well, I would first say from a very personal standpoint, it, it's an extremely exciting field. But you are exactly correct that when we think of 
about forage crops uh, and you think about them, if we think about growing a corn crop or, or soybean crop or something like that, we, we plant it and we harvest it in the same season, we could take it to the market. With forages, unless we're cash hay, we're marketing that product indirectly through an animal. So oftentimes, you know, we if we have good material, we may not get the credit because the animal might get more of the credit. And likewise, if we have bad quality, it may something else might interfere by the time we get to that feeding point. So it is one, it's uh, indirect. We have it uh, that we have to market through an animal before we do it. But that uh, offers an opportunity because over my career, uh, when I first started, we had a lot of people just working on forages and there was not as much, there was a lot, but not as much interaction. Now, I think what we're seeing, and part of that's out of necessity, we're having to work more as teams. We're having to bring the animal science, the forage specialists. We're having to bring the uh, economists into the picture, the veterinarians oftentimes. And then we expand that from the university perspective to industry. So we're, we're, we're needing those inputs as well. So I think that's been one of the things. The other thing that we can work more efficiently is the technology that we had to work with. You know, I spent a lot of my time uh, early in my career, uh, first half of my career, uh, in automobiles or, or uh, writing letters or on the phone. So we're, we're, we can do a lot of that type communications much more efficiently. By the time I got a soil test and then mailed it back to the people, uh, you know, that was taking a lot of days. Now we can do that, get it back to them via email or, or install online, real quick technology, so we can do things much more timely today and we have a lot better products to work with. You think about the advances that have occurred in genetics and chemical control. And as a result of those advances and, and really some top level managers across the country, we're now producing more products per acre, more products per animal than we've ever produced. And one thing that we don't tell the story as well, Peter, is we're doing that with less water per acre. We're doing that with less chemical per acre and less fertilizer. And that's part of the story that I don't think is getting told as well because the farmer's under tremendous pressure uh, to, from an environmental standpoint, from an economic standpoint, sustainability standpoint. So uh, my respect for the American farmer is uh, extremely high. I couldn't be a farmer. I don't know enough to be a farmer. I'm not smart enough. Hey, I'm gonna know a little bit about forages, but they have to know the whole gamut. So, uh, yeah, it is more challenging today, but I think we are, uh, you know, we have some good uh, people coming into agriculture. One thing when I first started, you know, it was like uh, 80 plus percent male. Now we have a good balance of high quality females in the program. A lot of them are in animal based agriculture. We have a lot uh, in, in forage based agriculture. So it's good to see these new ones come in. It's good to, good to see them, but we still we still very, have to be very competitive with the others. That's much more glamour in some of the things than it is in going out here and harvesting some hay or, or putting some animals on a pasture and then come back 28 days and weigh them and then, then look at that. So it, it's more challenging, more expensive too, especially mm -hmm. you know this well because you do a lot of animal research trials and uh, it's very expensive to do those today. So getting funding to do them and to do a good job where you can have the necessary 
protocols in place and get the proper data and get enough of that replicated so it's really meaningful, publishable, and usable uh, is a challenge. And I think that there's some opportunities. You and I have spoken a lot about telling our story and doing a better job, our being forage agriculture. Um, I think also um, gentlemen from Brazil that I've gotten to know a little over the last two and a half years and somebody from his group just published a study that was showing that they, and they're doing the integrated livestock cropping systems. So the, the, the crop ground spends a significant period of time in grass under grazing. And they've, they demonstrated that fertilizing the forage during that pasture phase was more efficient than fertilizing the crop. So because most of that was going to still be in place because the animal only removes a small portion of it. So it cycles through that forage phase and then they can roll out of that and grow a crop for a season or two and then go back into forage. And so to your point, not only are we using, we're producing more food from the same land, but with less inputs. And that, that's the kind of thing that I think we need to get better at telling more people about. Um, and there are others that we could point to. But uh, so you said before, you, you grew up in, uh, I wouldn't call it subsistence agriculture, but it was a low kind of by our current estimation. It, it might be the more romantic version that some people have who've never done it. Um, but then you, in Europe, saw different styles in Europe in the 60s, and that would be very different than you would see today. And then you come back, but you've also gotten to visit farmers in a lot of different parts of the world. So what, what's your country count up to now? Uh, 57. But you know, I still haven't traveled to as many as my colleague, Dr. Carl Hublin. He's been my travel mentor over the years. Yeah. But you still haven't visited uh, Antarctica, have you? That's the one I haven't got. And uh, <laughs> after this last year, I'm not sure I'm ever going to get there. But but I haven't given up on it yet. All right. So what, what sorts of the, 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 the pastoral agriculture, the forage agriculture, and the differences that you've seen as you've gotten to visit the other, is it six <laughs> continents, um, the, the rest of the continents? Well, you know, it's always a learning experience for me. And I've visited a lot of farms here in Kentucky, uh, throughout the U.S. and around the world. But, you know, I don't go on many farms. I don't learn something uh, because it's a new experience, a new way, perhaps a new environment. Uh, but uh, a lot of the things that impacted my career, I, I picked up not uh, in other places. It may have been another state. A lot of them, for example, you had Dr. Henning on your program the other day, and he talked about Kentucky and the years ago when we started the grazing school that we went over in Missouri and learned how they, Jim Garris was doing it there, came back and started a grazing school here. So that was right here. However, uh, a lot of the, the technology that we implemented in this country came from New Zealand. 
And I made a number of trips there. And I was, you know, we think about electric fencing. And I was at Gallagher headquarters a number of times and learned about that. So we actually borrowed a lot of great ideas from the New Zealanders just on grazing. And then you've been involved with us on a lot of uh, alfalfa and alfalfa grazing. I got interested in that since I did my PhD on it. And I came to Kentucky and worked here with Warren Thompson. So it was mandatory. I had to have a good alfalfa program with Warren, uh, and I did. And I've always, alfalfa is a wonderful crop. It deserves the, the name, the queen of the forages. But I, uh, in Kentucky, we have a problem with summer pasture. Uh, we are fescues and orchard grasses go somewhat dormant in the summer as we get hot and dry. So we, we've always had need for a, a better summer grazing crop. Well, alfalfa in Kentucky historically is never, was never referred to or considered a grazing crop. But I went down to South America on one of my early trips down there, in Argentina in particular, and I saw my first large-scale grazing of alfalfa. Saw it on many different farms, talked to a lot of people there. And as a result of that, I came back to Kentucky and started a, an emphasis program on alfalfa as a grazing crop. Not necessarily just for summer grazing, but uh, as a grazing crop, and it has a lot of potential for that. So that picked up there. Uh, throughout Europe, learned a lot about silages and baleages. Or, I mean, at, we applied a lot of that to the baleage technology here. So it kind of depends on, on where we're in the country that you can you can pick up things and learn. But you know, uh, we we have borrowed or uh, plagiarized information from all over the world if it'll yes. help our farmers. And likewise, we, we've had a chance to help others uh, around the world. And and you and industry have done a lot of this as well. And, and you have uh, exchanged information and have colleagues. And one of the great things about, uh, about the travels is I've been able to meet a lot of wonderful scientists, a lot of wonderful farmers. Uh, in fact, we've just finished um, uh, putting together a book on the International Grassland Congress. And in addition to Dr. Vivian Allen and Dr. Ray Smith, uh, a friend in England that I first met uh, at one of these international conferences has been a key player in, in working on that book. He's, he's my age, so he's been to about the same amount of conferences I have, but he knows knew a lot of the uh, networking people we could get up with in Europe and other places. So it's those kind of things that's helped. And that helps after the visit because you have that contact. And the technology now where, you know, they can just email back and forth. Uh, you can get that or you can Zoom and uh, they can show you what the plant looks like in that environment with that disease or that insect. So it's, it's very easy. And that's been a, a very uh, effective way for me to learn and implement. And I wouldn't want my department chair to know it during my career, but I don't think I ever had original idea. I picked it up from somebody else, you know, and, and used it. Fair enough. I, I had someone tell me um, shortly after arriving in Oregon that we really didn't need to do a lot more new research. What we had to do is find a way to apply the last 35 years worth of results. And and I liked uh, Jimmy's quote that he gave me of, you know, if you've got an idea that nobody's using, you better ask why. Um, exactly. You know, um, and, and uh, uh, something along those lines, you know, we can do a lot of research at the experiment station, small plot research and things, 
but my acid test after we finished any kind of research and taken out the farmers, give the farmers an opportunity to test that technology, that new practice, that new principle. And, and if they make it work, you know you've got something. And if they can't, if they don't make it work, then you have to really question the value of that research. So the farmers have been the ones that have to make it work on a big scale out on the farm and not only grow it, uh, but also convert that into something that they can sell and, and recover their expenses and hopefully make a little profit. Hmm, absolutely. Because there's no sustainability without profit. It's, it is a business. It, you have to have that in order for this to to be maintained, sustained, maintained over years. So, you know, we, we've spoken enough in the past. I, I'm absolutely convinced that animal source food is essential in the diet at some level of all human beings at some time in their life. I, I just, that that's one of my foundational sort of things, but it probably wouldn't hurt to have a you to say something about the advantages of those animal source foods coming from ruminant animal systems as a or at least the differences let's not judge let's just say the differences between uh, a ruminant animal source food production system and the simple stomach animals like poultry and swine that if we step back and think from a food production challenge globally there's ecological advantages to ruminants. And if you could talk a little bit about your perception of those in Kentucky or other parts of the world. Yeah, that, that's a, an excellent point and one that, that we need to talk about more. And this gives me a good opportunity, and I know you won't, uh, you won't like me saying this, but I, I want to say a special thank you to you because you have brought in the last decade plus you have brought a level of understanding uh, to uh, the agronomist, to the animal scientist, and to the, the consumer that we agronomists just hasn't been effective at. We, we haven't known as well, but you have shared with us through all of your contacts and all of the information you've been able to glean, the value of ruminant uh, products, the value of meat. We have done a good job over the years, I think, of sharing the fact that because of the uniqueness of a ruminant animal, we can utilize high fiber resources, pasture, hay, silage, that we as humans can't use. And that's one thing that animal-based agriculture don't get enough credit. Uh, we seem to get criticized a lot that we're using grain and we're using this, but when you think about the vast majority of the beef that we produce, a high percent of that animal's total life diet comes from things that humans don't consume on land that we can't use to grow corn, soybeans. So that resource is a valuable animal. I, I have so much respect for that ruminant animal that uh, you talk about the miracle and the magic that that animal can do of converting that fescue and that clover or that alfalfa, converting that into some of the most tasty and some of the most nutritious products that we have in spite of some of the uh, some of the information that's getting out. And, and I think, uh, and, and you've done an excellent job of bringing to science, the science about red meat uh, and, and the fairness of the science of red meat, meat to, the, to the consumer and especially to us in the scientific community that 
either we felt intimidated or we didn't know enough about it. But uh, I'm very, very proud to be uh, an advocate of red meat. And, and I, I just think that we, uh, we can't sit back and let others discredit our product that we know is, it has value. And when we think about the future, and we think about the number of people in the world that we are going to have to feed by 2050, for example, we're going to have to utilize uh, more of the animal-based agriculture, utilize these resources that, that we're just not able to use for other purposes, the land resources. And we can do it in a, in a sustainable, environmentally friendly way. And I think that's very important when you look at the whole package. You would you've mentioned the, the 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 name fescue has come up a couple times already, and and many people might not know tall fescue, and they might not know its story at stabilizing the soils of the transition zone in the southeastern U.S. So, if we could just touch a little bit on what it did in that role. And then um, maybe it's it's importance to agriculture, and um, you've already mentioned some of the people from University of Kentucky or in Kentucky that that played a significant role in the development and and propagation of that. Well, I, I'm delighted because I have spent a, a large part of my career working with this plant. I, I can be, begin by saying. My first experience with uh, tall fescue occurred when I was five years old. Now, I didn't know it at the time, but I was uh, with my granddad. He had just gotten 10 pounds of seed from the county agent. Now, it wasn't called fescue. It, it was called pseudograss. That's what my papa thought it was. And we, he had broken the ground with a team. He had disc it. Uh, and I was permitted to drag it. I could sit on the drag and drive the team and drag the land. So I drug an acre of land for him, and he seeded that with a horn seeder. Now, a horn seeder was just the fact that we had uh, we had Hereford cattle with long horns. When we cut them off, we'd take the tip off of, the, of one of them that was shaped just right, and he would take some uh, rawhide and, and put a bag, uh, saw a bag on that, and he would use that as his cedar. It'd be the cyclone-type cedar. And he was good at it because he could hold his finger over and get about the right amount as he seeded. He did that, and I dragged it. So I did that. I had no idea what, what he was doing at the time. But uh, that that was in the 40s, uh, late 40s. And uh, what uh, happened uh, before tall fescue in Kentucky, we had a tremendous amount of erosion as we did throughout the transition zone. We didn't have a good perennial grass. We had a lot of red top and a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, sumac and sawbrars and things of that nature. And in, in 1931, uh, Dr. Ian Fergus that we spoke of earlier went down to Menifee County, Kentucky to judge a sorghum syrup show in the fall of the year, October. And he did that, and while he was there, some farmers asked him, what do you think about that grass over on the Suda farm? He said, I, I'm not familiar with it. They said, well, we'll take you over. He went over to that field on Mr. Suda's farm, uh, and he saw a, a very steep hillside, and he saw a very good grass sod, animals on it in the fall. It was very green and growing. It looked good, and he knew enough about the taxonomy that he thought it was some kind of a festuca, 
but he asked Mr. Souter, Mr. Souter actually had a little seed. So Dr. Fergus took a few pounds of seed back to Lexington, Kentucky in the fall of 1931. And he was a clover breeder. So this wasn't something he took back and said, with all enthusiasm, I'm gonna get right on it. He just piddled with it a little bit, planted some in some pots in the greenhouse, put a little bit out. And then there was an extension man a couple of years later that was going by that field. And he was real concerned about all the erosion, the lack of a good perennial forage in Kentucky. He stopped and looked at it. He got real excited. And the next Monday morning, he was in Dr. Ferguson's office and said, we really need to do something with that because it has so much potential. So potential. So Dr. Ferguson started working with it. He really increased it. Uh, and uh, Ed Johnstone was the extension man. He took some seed out across the state. That's where my grandfather got that first seed through the county agent. And he put it out. And uh, so they uh, worked on it until 1943, pulled all the data together and released it in 1943 as the variety Kentucky 31. It was found in Kentucky in 1931. Farmers readily planted it. As a result, over the next decade, it was planted on about 35 million acres in the southeastern U.S. Now, we've got about 7 million acres of pasture and hayland here in Kentucky, and about five and a half of that is in tall fescue. So it did served as a very important uh, plant that, that not only held our state together, but also fed a lot of animals. But as it got into to wide existence, some animal problems started, and we won't take the time now, but there were some animal syndromes that started, the animal poor performance. Some animals had some feet problems, some had some other problems. But uh, the one that was a major concern was a problem called fescue toxicosis or summer syndrome. And this was a situation where animals just didn't do as well on that as the chemical analysis suggested they should. And for many years, in fact, until the mid 70s, there were a lot of scientists, a lot of industry personnel, a lot of graduate students that chased a lot of rabbits trying to figure out what is it about this grass? What is it that, you know, it looks like it's got a good chemical analysis if you cut it early, if you graze it early, but animals just don't breed well, they don't tolerate the heat well, uh, they don't gain well. And then a breakthrough down in Georgia occurred again on another farm, not because of a lot of research. As a result of that and some work at Auburn, it was found that there's a fungus that grows inside of that tall fescue called an endophyte. Endo means within and phyte means plant. So when this fungus grows inside that plant, there's a toxin produced called an alkaloid. And when animals consume that chemical in any form as way of pasture, hay, silage, green chop, animal performance is reduced. So that was the link, and that was in the 70s between that fungus and uh, the poor animal performance. So the theory was, the idea, well, we know it, what's the problem now, let's just take it out. Take that fungus out of fescue, did that, and we learned the hard way that there was a reason that fungus was in there. There was a good symbiotic relationship uh, to those. And when we did, we weakened the plant. And I say we, I mean industry collectively. So the next idea, find a good endophyte, one that doesn't produce the alkaloids, but one that will permit that plant to be stress tolerant, be able to tolerate the stresses and be persistent. And with the aid of our New Zealand friends, Dr. Gary Latch, they found a good 
novel entophyte that didn't produce those toxic alkaloids. The best of the best was brought to the University of Georgia in conjunction with Dr. Joe Bowden. That was put in then that first product, the genetics, fescue genetics from Georgia and the endophyte from New Zealand put together and sold by Pennington Seed as Max-Q Top SQ. That was the first novel endophyte. And by novel, it, meant, it simply means it, it has stress tolerance. In other words, it'll still be a tough plant. Now, I don't think anything will ever be as tough as 31, but it'll still be tough. But it will give good animal performance. Research over the years has proven that to be true. And now there are several varieties. Uh, you, you're very familiar with one uh, that your company produces. So there's some really good varieties. Now, uh, in Kentucky uh, alone, uh, that's costing us over $100 million a year. And throughout the Southeast, just in the beef cattle industry, that fungus in tall fescue is costing our producers about a billion dollars a year. And uh, we have problems with other species as well, but uh, for brevity's sake, we do that. So this has been one of the most uh, challenging, interesting, frustrating experiences of my career. And I've probably spent as much time on that plant as I have any others. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of things that we know about it, that we've learned about it on management, adding legumes to it and so forth. But as a result, and back to our earlier conversation, we're what's new today that we didn't have. That's a big one. That's a major one that's helping to move animal-based agriculture forward, give us more products per acre with less input and a better uh, better environment for our animals to be in out there. It's, it's it, you, you made the point about, um, I, I guess there's a reason that that plant looked so good in that stand on that hillside in 1931, it, it, as I understand it, all the way back, it's been endophyte infected. Exactly. Uh, and 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 one of the many unique things about that particular fungus is it never forms an infective body that it, it has to go from maternal plant to seed and then successfully infect this, the plant that develops from that seed, it doesn't even transfer in the pollen. It's, it's this incredibly specialized relationship. And as we look, we find more and more of this kind of symbiotic relationship between fungi and plant, or the, the, the relationships that people are finding in the soil between microorganisms and plants and the soil. And it's exciting to think about all the things that are yet to be discovered, let alone is it something that we can harness in any way or merely just pay attention to so that we don't get in the way of it because it's already doing a good job. Um, so there are a lot of exciting, it's not like, too many people think that agriculture is a lot more simple than it turns out to be. And I think there's a lot of, um, examples that we could point to to show how this kind of uh, learning is yet to be employed overseas in the United States on at scale, small scale, whatever you want to look at. There's enormous opportunities in front of us. Well, I, I agree. 
Um, and that so, goes back to an earlier point you made about uh, a young person coming in. Uh, you know, I think ag culture continues to get somewhat of a bad rap. Um, it's, ag culture is not about plowing fields. Ag culture, as far as my perspective now retiring, is that it's the most exciting field out there. Whatever area that you have interest in, whether it's genetics, whether it's microbiology, any of these, it, it's an exciting area that has a lot of opportunities for bright young scientists to be involved in, be very fulfilling. So uh, I encourage uh, those who are, are thinking about uh, going uh, into a certain program at the university, take a look at agriculture and, and see what all is available. Uh, if I had it to do all over again, I wouldn't hesitate to go exactly. In fact, it would be exciting to go back and be able to have what we've got to work with now, mm. Peter, compared to what you and I actually started. And you know, I was much more primitive than you because you're a lot young, a lot younger than me. Thank you. So, what if, what's what's uh, Gary Lacefield been up to in you know the last five years? What what sorts of things? Because I don't imagine you're the kind of person that just sits at home in a rocking chair. So what? What? No, that that's exactly right. Uh, two reasons for that. First, my wife wouldn't permit it, <laughs> uh, and second, uh, I'm a Type A personality, uh, and I I just uh, don't handle sitting around a lot. Now, I admit I've had to make some adjustments this last year. Wow. And I've learned I can sit around. I can read more books. I can watch a lot of the old television shows and, and things like that. But no, I have been actively involved in, and I've, I've kind of had uh, the best of, of uh, both worlds. I've been able to be selective. Now, I don't fill out a lot of university forms anymore. I don't go to staff meetings like I used to. Uh, so I evaluate. But we just finished talking about fescue and and I did that hurriedly. But one of the things that Dr. Ball and Dr. Hubbell and I have talked about throughout our careers is the history of top fescue. And we all three have spoken on that all over the country. But we decided we wanted to put together a book. Now, the history of top fescue is not one that you can just go to the library and get journal articles, three replicates. That's exactly right. So we, that's one of the things we've done since we retired is put that together. And, and you can put a link on your thing to show them how to get that. But we've also written some other books on forage quotes and pocket guides. Uh, we, we did, uh, that's right, Southern Forages, is, that's now in its fifth edition. And um, interesting thing about that, uh, and you know the history of that, but uh, that book was, uh, when we first started working on it, it was never intended to go much beyond some county agents and some top farmers. And it's turned out, over the last 20 years to be the number one selling forage book, not only in the U.S., but in the world. It's okay. used in only 50, over 50 countries. So that's been a, a real highlight to be able to see what... How many languages be. has it been translated into? Uh, five, I think. Yeah, that, that's remarkable. That's um, and, and like you say, that wasn't anywhere close to the plan when you started it. So that, That's correct. Yeah, that's that, exactly right. I think and then... Uh, Dr. Ball has taken the leadership now, and we have two volumes of Forage Quotes and Concepts. And with Dr. Ball, Dr. Hublin, Dr. Bowden, and Dr. Allen, uh, we are now uh, working and uh, uh, way over halfway finished with the third mm -hmm. edition of that. So that is something. I've had the opportunity for the last 30 years and working in an area, Peter, that you know well, 
I've had a chance to work with the Oregon forage seed industry. Now, most of the forage seed, the fescues, orchard grass, clovers, ryegrass that we use in this part of the world is produced in Oregon. We, we don't produce forage seed here in Kentucky. We don't have the environment, the infrastructure, the, the uh, technology to do it. But the Willamette Valley of Oregon is indeed the world headquarters for forage seed production. Uh, that valley and the folks in that valley, some of the best seed producers in the world. They have the infrastructure, the climate. They have the support structure there with all the companies and the breeding companies, cleaning and processing, marketing. So they, they grow the seed. And they're some of the best top producers of seed that I've ever seen in the world. But they don't have a good appreciation for how we here in Kentucky seed fescue, how many pounds per acre, when do we seed, how do we seed it, how deep, when do we start grade, the practical management, the establishment management that. And Dr. Ball and I have worked with that industry, the fescue, clovers, ryegrass, orchard grass, now for a number of years. Since we retired, we've had more time to work on them. So we do a lot of the, the, the conferences and the speaking and the, write a lot of the publications. It's been a great group to work with. And uh, we started out just working with them. Now we're working with some of the third generation seed producers. And they're not only great seed producers, wonderful friends that we've had to work with. So we've, that uh, is something else we, we've done. And I continue to do a lot of speaking or did until March of last year. Yeah, I think the last trip that I had in 2020 was uh, San Antonio, and yeah. that was uh, two combined things. You were at both. Uh, Dr. Ball was at both, and um, yeah, we're we're going to have to do things differently from here on. May not be all a bad thing. We we may find new ways to do things using new technology. This, for example, is, is, is one um, possible application. So you've, you've been answering very patiently a lot of questions. Um, and I, I had a long list of questions that I was gonna ask you. And unfortunately, technology is not always my friend. And um, the, the the computer ate my homework, teacher. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of running down on the list of questions to ask you. So I'll open it to you to ask me some, if you have any. Well, one one thing that, that I do want to, to say, Peter, I thought about this a lot right after I retired. Uh, I was being interviewed for a, a piece that they were putting together, and uh, the uh, interviewer had sent me some questions they were going to ask. But the last question that she asked me was one that that uh, she didn't have on the list. I had to think about it a lot, and I've thought about it since then. I didn't do a very good job of answering it. But she asked me, uh, uh, what have been the, some of the greatest uh, impacts over my career? And it was an opportunity to talk about some of these things like we talked today about alfalfa or fescue or something. But she asked me what was the most important. And that one I wasn't prepared to answer because I didn't know what the most important thing and impact of my career was. And, and I've had some time to think about it since then. And while the, uh, the travel has been important, um, the books and, and publications and conferences and all of those things and the research and teaching has all been important. 
But I have to say that the most important thing is I look back over my career now has been the people that I've had a chance to work with. And it becomes more important every day as I have had to, uh, to uh, learn of people who haven't made it this last year, of colleagues, of people who I graduated college and high school with that didn't make it. And that so the people becomes more important. Now, in Kentucky, and I realize I'm very biased on this, I've had a chance to work with some of the best farmers in the world, some of the absolutely best. Now, we got some outstanding beef producers. Uh, we got some outstanding swine or horse producers and dairy cattle. Uh, and we don't think of Kentucky as a hay-producing state, but we've got some hay producers in this state, and you know uh, one of those in particular that that I would put up with hay producers in any part of the country. So great people. We talked earlier about some of those county agents that I worked with, especially the first half of my career, but we've got some good ones now. And they taught me a lot and they, they were great. So if I just expand that network into industry, to professors and friends, uh, I've had a chance to work with them. I've learned from them. Uh, and the older I get, the more I've learned from them and the more I appreciate them and the more I wish that I would have told them that I appreciate them before it became uh, the point where I couldn't. So though that's, that's without question the most important thing. And then back to that early question that we started with and that fact that uh, uh, had that little girl that I met in the eighth grade, that's, probably, that's been the most important thing because as of... Uh, Last June, we'd been married 53 years. Nice. Nice. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I guess one of the things that animates me is I know all these wonderful people across all these disciplines. And I, I want to introduce them to each other because I think we've got so much to learn from each other. Um, and I think it's only by doing that, and you mentioned it earlier, in forages we're being, it, it's a requirement that we work in teams. Um, it always was. Uh, I mean, Oregon State used to have somebody in entomology and soils and animal science and rangeland and crops, many people all working sort of together in the similar sort of topic. Um, but even more so now, um, doing those kinds of things. And I, I said in an interview yesterday that I thought one of the advantages for me in my outlook is that forages requires you to think about more than the agronomy of how to plant this and get it growing. Um, you have to be aware of animal science. You have to be aware of farm practices and machinery and all soil fertility and maybe some pest uh, entomology, depending on what part of the world you're in. We mentioned the novel endophyte. And one of the reasons that that was so big was in New Zealand, it was because there was a specific insect that would kill their grass stands if they didn't have, but that created its own animal problems, but they were just living with it until they found a different solution. So all of those things force us in forages to think a little bit outside of our particular discipline and silo. And, and I think that that's what we have to do more and more of. I think the, 
sort of reductionist, specialized approach to things can lead us astray if we're not hearing from people in related but separate disciplines. Agreed. Um, when, I, when we first started, or I first started to work, we had a whole lot more resources than, than we have today. And as a result, you know, many of us could, I could do things just in forages. My animal science colleague could do something just in animal science. So we worked together back then out of desire, but the resources are more limiting to now. So we, we have to work together now out of necessity to be able to get the job done totally. And that's not only getting the results out, getting the project started, getting the results out, but it's also from a standpoint, just getting resources. There's just not enough as much money for research out there more now. And especially in the area of forages, as we talked earlier, where, you know, you think about grazing research, it's expensive. And there's just not a lot of people out there wanting to say, hey, let me put, you know, this much money into a grazing project. Yeah. But it's so, so critically important. Indeed. And um, if you think about a young faculty member joining, hard to get funding. It's not the kind of research that's going to give quick turn on results and multiple sort of publications, which of course is a requirement. So it's, it's, it's good that there are states like Kentucky that seem to have recognized more than other states the fundamental role that forage agriculture plays in their economy and their rural uh, communities. And the then we could maybe get some more traction on the idea that they're producing the food that people need in their diet as opposed to some other things. Um, so you've you've been very generous and and as always very warm um i'm giving you the opportunity to ask me any questions that you might have of me before we uh reluctantly say goodbye for now well i would uh, just ask you if you continue to be optimistic about the role and importance of red meat uh, in the future of the American diet, I do, um, and I th and, and I'm optimistic, um, despite evidence to the contrary. I think that the arguments are shifting. Um, there's been a lot of buzz about regenerative agriculture, um, and we could talk about those details. But um, I th I see that the opponents to red meat are moving away from their human health arguments, although they're doing it interestingly, but they're, they're actually attacking the regenerative agriculture message because I think for whatever flaws that we could identify in it, they recognize that people are saying, oh, wait a minute, you mean that grazing animals can actually improve soil health to whatever degree they can do that, that well-managed grass stands can actually play a role in surface water quality and nutrient cycling. So again, this gets back to, we, we've got to tell our story better because I think we have a really good story. And then more and more, there are individuals who are having their own pers what I call personal health journey. 
And some of these are people who believe that they would get better health by restricting red meat, for example, and yet they got sicker. And then they hear somebody talking about, well, you know, I ate more red meat, and my health improved. And they go, that's crazy, but it's no crazier than what I'm experiencing. So they try it. And what do you know? They get healthier too. And then that message spreads. Now it doesn't spread officially because there's still a lot of resistance to that. Although if you go north up to uh, Ohio State University, you'll find some researchers doing good work demonstrating uh, a lot of this kind of story. So little by little, it's getting more and more. We've come a long way in the 10 years since I first started talking to you. Uh, I agree. And I, I think we in, in forage-based agriculture owe a lot of uh, that credit to you because you brought the, the people, you're not only yourself, but you brought others into our conferences, into our groups, and shared that information. So it's given us more confidence. It's also given us the accurate story to tell. And it's permitted us to be at least more uh, proactive in addressing some of these issues. And I, I think we need to continue to do that because it's it's that important. And I, you know, it's it's a story where potentially everyone can win. And you want to be on the part of those kind of programs and those stories, mm -hmm. which is a win-win for everyone rather than a win-lose for somebody. Mm -hmm. There's no us and them. It's all us. That's right. That's you know, it's so um, um, for Team Human, uh, I want us all to be as healthy as we're capable of being. And that's globally speaking. And I'm learning about international agriculture. I think that's really exciting. We do have some challenges ahead, but I'm absolutely convinced that forage agriculture is fundamental to achieving those goals as well. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm, you should pardon the expression, I'm bullish on um, forage agriculture going forward. And I do want to encourage anyone interested in a career to, to look into it. Uh, you, you don't have to be a producer to be involved in forage agriculture. Not all of us are gifted enough to do that or blessed enough to do that, but we can darn sure get involved in, in many different ways. So you mentioned Southern forages, you, you mentioned the Wondergrass. I will certainly put links in the show notes to those resources. Um, I guess just to one more thing is, is, and I didn't ask you this, I don't think ahead of time, so it's a little unfair, um, but somebody who just wants to learn more, where would you direct them to in addition to those resources that I just mentioned? Well, there's a tremendous amount of information out there now, literally at your fingertips, but I would advise people to beware. For example, it would depend on where they're at as to where I would send them. In, in forages, we go all the way from the tropical forages to the range forages. But if they're here in Kentucky, uh, I would recommend that they go first to the University of Kentucky Forage website. Uh, it's an excellent website, unbiased information. Uh, I, I actually put that together many years before I retired, but my colleagues have built on it and built it better. From that, there's a lot of other places. We mentioned the, the Oregon seed industry. Each one of those commissions, which can be obtained just by Googling Oregon Tall Fescue, Oregon Clover, and they have a lot of publications uh, on those that 
that we've written and their management type things here, how to grow a fescue, how to grow orchard grass, how to grow the clovers, how to harvest them. So that's another good source of information. Um, and if, if people in the counties want information on their soils, go down to the NRCS office. And there's a lot of valuable information at these offices on maps of your farm. You can learn more about the soils and then a soil test will add to that information. So a lot of that, the only thing the the internet provides a tremendous resource of information, but we also have a lot of information on that internet that's not true. Uh, we have a lot of people who uh, who are doing a good job of writing information about all different kinds of topics, but we need to, uh, the reader needs to beware because uh, you and I have to have three years of replicated data to be able to put out a, a journal article, but a person can just have an opinion and sit there in one stroke of the key can have that around the world. So we need to be careful, but there's information available now uh, at, at your fingertip. And a lot of the meetings that I go to now that used to take all kinds of publications, now they just say, Where's, do you have that on a thumb drive? You know, you want it on something that they can do electronically. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. And then going to meetings uh, are an excellent place. You just came from a a national meeting down in Georgia. Uh, that, that was the best information available on, on forages. If you were into animal science, uh, going to the national cattleman meeting uh, this summer down in Nashville, Tennessee. So there's a lot of meetings like that, but just get out and, and uh, start asking some questions. And then for me, uh, like I said earlier, I learned from farmers. If I was just interested in starting a farm, I would look up and down the road that I was going to start that farm of some of the best pastures up and down there. And I would uh, go talk to that farmer. Most farmers that I've met are willing to share their information, uh, the good, bad, and the ugly uh, to help someone else. And I sure would take advantage of the experience of those good producers. And I think Dr. Henning did a good job of talking, encouraging people to investigate what the Extension Service offices might offer. And you mentioned NRCS. Uh, if somebody wanted to learn about grazing management, being in Kentucky, you're well located for grazing schools. Those sorts yeah. of, of resources are available to people to, to learn. So, Well, here, here in Kentucky, we've got 120 counties. And we've got a, an extension office in each one of those counties. So every publication that I or Dr. Henning uh, have ever written are available in those county offices free of charge uh, with, with minor exceptions. So that's the first place to start. You want to have your soil tested, that's the first place. If you've got sick plants, you want, that's the first place to take them. And then through them, they can link to any any of uh, the uh, more uh, technical people within the university system. And I was going to ask hay sample, and that reminded me of something. And I, I, I just had to realize this the other day, that one of the reasons we make such a big deal about hay sampling is because hay varies so much in its nutritive value from cutting to cutting, field to field, year to year, that to just try to use one value from a table for hay, comma, fescue, comma, tall, mid-bloom or something, I mean... It's ridiculous. It's not good enough anymore for producers today. It may have been good enough at one point, but not today. But guess what? All plant source foods vary like that. 
Mm-hmm. That's true. And so much of human nutrition is the table value plugged into a, a, a food label. And and so when I learned that, I just went, oh, my goodness, we, we don't do that when we feed our mama cows in the wintertime or, or make a ration, certainly for our milk cows. So one more difference between agriculture and human <laughs> nutrition. Uh, That's correct. And we've uh, got a good program here in Kentucky. That program is run not through our extension service, but through our uh, Department of Agriculture. So uh, we got a program. All it takes is a phone call. Uh, someone will come to your farm, sample the hay, $10 per lot. Very, very good uh, service, very cheap. And you're right, uh, there was a time when we didn't have a testing service. So we, we used book values because that's all we had. But we usually, we, we penalized the good producer. And then we gave the poor producer a false narrative of what he, products he had. Mm-hmm. So this helps to find out what we've got. And, and you know, forage quality is something we've got to continue to emphasize. Indeed. Gary, thank you so much for the time. I really always enjoy talking with you, and I hope everyone gets a sense of that from this episode. And uh, look forward to the next time. Well, thank you so much for inviting me on. And I need to reiterate, I do not have any bad stories or photographs, so I'm not sure why you had me, but I've enjoyed visiting with you, and I wish you the best of luck for 2021. You as well. Thank you. Thank you.